Welcome to Forthright Radio. I'm Joy LaClaire. We were delighted to welcome University of Southern California professor David Troyer to the Beyond the Deep End studio on March 12, 2019, to discuss his work, his life, and his latest book, The Heartbeat of Wounded Knee, Native America from 1890 to the Present, published by Riverhead Books. Almost from the moment it occurred, the 1890 massacre at Wounded Knee Creek on the Pine Ridge Reservation in South Dakota was cast in the popular imagination as a point of no return at which not only did hundreds of Lakota men, women, and children perish, but so, in a sense, did Native American life itself. This romantic idea of a once noble race doomed to oblivion crystallized into gospel over the decades and was further cemented by D. Brown's 1970 bestseller, Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee. Our guest, David Troyer, the critically acclaimed writer, anthropologist, and journalist, himself Ojibwe from the Leech Lake Reservation in northern Minnesota, brought to that mythology its long-overdue reckoning with his book, The Heartbeat of Wounded Knee. It is a powerfully illuminating counter-narrative that dispels the misconceptions of Indian history as unmitigated tragedy. David Troyer traces the rich, resilient, and multidimensional story that Native people have been living over the past century and tens of millennia, and adds new chapters to the story of American Indian creativity resilience in our modern times, and contributions to our own democracy. David Troyer, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. You write in the prologue to The Heartbeat of Wounded Knee, Native America from 1890 to the present, that you wanted to change the story left by Dee Brown's book, Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee, and that to do that, you had to embark on three journeys— so what was the story you wanted to change, and what were the three journeys? Well, Dee Brown's book is not alone. It's, on the contrary, representative of a really widespread and common way of thinking about Native people, which is as peoples with a great future behind us. And on the very first page of Dee Brown's book, which is the best-selling book of Native American history ever published, it was published in 1970, it's sold millions of copies, it's never been out of print, it's published in 17 languages at least. And on the very first page of that book, he says something to the effect of, I'm focusing on the American West, a time of unparalleled greed, and so on and so forth. And I start in 1850, and I end in 1890 at the massacre at Wounded Knee, where, quote, the culture and the civilization of the American Indian was destroyed, end quote. And he goes on, on the second page, to say something like, if you happen to travel to a contemporary Indian reservation and notice the poverty and the hopelessness and the squalor, perhaps by reading my book, you will understand why. And that's what I'm writing against. But his understanding is the common understanding that for all intents and purposes, Native life, in any kind of sense of lives that Native people make, the lives that we actually live, for all intents and purposes, ended when the frontier was closed in 1890, around the time of that massacre in Pine Ridge, South Dakota. And as a Native American person, I can't help but feel that he's wrong. And so I was determined to write a follow-up and counter-narrative to his book. I wanted to start in 1890, 
and I wanted to bring the story of Native American lives up to the present, and I wanted to do it with the opposite thesis in tow, that 1890 was not the end of anything for us, that 1890 might have been a low point, and maybe even the lowest point for Native people collectively across the United States. Our populations were the lowest they had been in history. 200,000 Native people on the census in 1900, down from 20 million, 400 short years before. It was a low point. But it was a point from which we have been living and emerging and, and fighting and succeeding in many, many cases. But that's kind of the problem, right? People understand Native history only as a litany of abuse that's been heaped on us. Our history is only understood as a laundry list of abuse. And our history is rarely understood as something that Native people ourselves, as something that we have made too. Not always with tools of our choosing, not always as we please, but something that we have made. We are historical actors, not just victims of history. And so that's what I'm writing against. You suggest in your prologue that this was a journey for you of three types. Sure. Right. So in order to, to write this counter-narrative, not just a counter-history, but a counter-narrative, a counter-history would be other names, other dates, and other facts. A counter-narrative is a whole new way of telling the story of Native life. But to do that, I had to go back into the written record. I had to look far, far back at the deep history of Native tribes and Native peoples over a long, a long arc. But since this is about Native life and not Native death, I also had to talk to living Native people and learn from them what their lives were like, what the terms by which they've lived their lives are like. And the third journey was, was more of an inward, personal one. I felt very strongly that, as a Native person, I understand only too well the ways in which Native people have been manipulated in print. And I wasn't going to do that to anyone. And if I was going to talk to people and ask them about their lives and ask them to share very personal things about themselves, it wasn't fair not to take the same risks. If they're going to talk about themselves, if they're going to put themselves on the line, I have to put myself on the line. And so that third journey was, was an inward one. But also it was a necessary one for me too. I mean, this is not a book for outsiders, exactly. It's a book for Native people too. I think we often labor under the same misapprehension of our own past as other people do. I think we, in many ways, have bought in to the myth of our powerlessness and the myth of our history as only victimization. So I wanted to change my own thinking, the thinking of my friends and my family and the people I care about. So I had to, I had to go in to do that. You wrote that you began writing the book the week that your father died, since we're talking about your family. I think that's a good place to journey in this interview. Your father was a very interesting man with a very interesting history, and so is your mother. Please talk about your origins through them. Sure. I guess when I look back on it, I had an unusual family. I also, when I was a kid, really wanted what I thought of as a usual family. I wanted a, a kind of stern, remote, Scandinavian-type father who wasn't so emotional. My dad was a very emotional guy. Now, of course, I'm, I'm grateful for the way my father was. He taught me how to feel. That's no small gift, I think. And my mother is Ojibwe from the Leech Lake Reservation, and that's where I was raised, and that's where I grew up, with my mother's family, with my tribe. That, that was my, my young adulthood. And I moved back there many times, and I've moved back and reconnected as a grown-up and lived there for many years as well. And now I split my time between California and Leech Lake. 
My father is a traveler, not just to the reservation, but to America. He was a Jewish Holocaust survivor, fled Austria in 1938, made it to the States by 1940, where he was reunited with his parents who made it out, and one uncle and two cousins. Not all of them made it to the States, but they were the only ones who survived the Holocaust. Everyone else was murdered. And through a series of life adventures, he wound up on the reservation teaching high school English. He met my mom on the reservation. They married and had my older brother and me and my younger brother and sister. And this book is very much infused with, with him, with my mother, of course, and with my tribe. And, and that's my life. You know, people ask me, like, you don't claim your Jewish side. And I said, well, the Germans took care of that for me. The Germans killed my Jewish side for, for the most part. And I wasn't raised near the few that remained, and I wasn't raised anywhere near or in a Jewish community. I, I always felt like an outsider. I felt like it wasn't something was proper for me to claim because I, I didn't live it. I didn't know it. It's a heritage of which I'm proud, but it's not a community to which I've ever been deeply connected. But my father, <laughs> he was so emotional all the time, always had all the feelings in the world, and his losses, his, his suffering in the Holocaust was never far from his mind or from his heart. And he was a really deep guy, but it ran very close to the surface. But he was the most frustrated optimist I've ever met in my life. Never satisfied, never content, but always really hopeful for, for the future, for the evolution, for the ultimate the ultimate restoration of America's best promises to its citizens. Late in his life, I asked him, he was suffering from dementia and Alzheimer's by then, and I asked him how he could stand what this country does. I was in a bad mood that day, I think, about America. And he looked at me like I was pretty stupid, and he said, look, this country saved my life. This country took me in. No other country was willing to do that. We tried to find refuge in, in England, in Ireland, lots of other places, and they wouldn't have us. We found refuge here. This country saved my life. And so it's, it's my job to try and make her better. It's my job to make sure that she does the best she can, that she not fall into her, her worst instincts, but lives out her best ideals. That's the job. She saved my life, the country. It's my job to save the country from itself. And that sort of optimism, that sort of commitment to progress and social change was really, really central for me as I started to write this book. As you say, I started writing it the, the week of his death. And he was very much on my mind in the writing of the book. Well, it occurs to me that First of all, in the Jewish tradition, you are, would not be considered Jewish. I wouldn't be. Because it's through the mother line. All right. Having said that, however, it occurs to me that both of your heritages, both of your ancestors have experienced efforts at genocide. And so there's also that. But further, and towards the very last pages of your book, you echo your father about how... The American Indian was changed by the experience of America, but America was and is changed 
by the American Indian. That's, yeah. And that's very profound. I don't think it's profound at all. It just makes sense to me. One of the problems that I'm trying to solve by writing this book is the persistent idea that Native history is some kind of sideshow to American history. And to pay attention to Native people and to Native histories is a kind of liberal social act, a kind of community service. That's how we're treated. That's how our history is treated. But I think that to feel that way is to misapprehend Native history and to misapprehend American history. I really believe that you can't begin to understand American history until you look at American Indian history. America's first revolutionary act when they dumped tea in Boston Harbor, they didn't just dump tea in Boston Harbor, they dressed up as Mohawk Indians and then dumped tea in Boston Harbor. After the American Revolution, when America was trying to figure out what shape its government should have, and they were looking around for models, they borrowed heavily from the Iroquois Confederacy, who had a separation of powers. They had different sort of, not quite a legislative, an executive, and a judicial, but something close to it. American government wouldn't look the way it did if, if the founders hadn't looked to the Iroquois Confederacy for inspiration. After that, America began to understand itself as, as a country with manifest destiny, with a, with a certain imperial destiny. And that destiny was played out from the beginning to the very end in relation to Native communities. Furthermore, all these questions that vex the country, you know, states' rights versus federal power, that's a question that still comes up. The first time that question came up in American history was not the Civil War. The first time that question came up in American history was around the issue of the removal of the five civilized tribes from the southeastern United States. Georgia wanted to remove natives. The native tribes, sovereign nations, said, you don't have any right to remove us. We're more powerful than you are. And they took their case to the Supreme Court. And the court ruled in their favor, saying the states have no rights to impinge on the sovereignty of sovereign Indian nations. And then, of course, President Jackson, being a real estate speculator, just like our current president, said, well, that's... Just like our first president. Just like our first president. <laughs> that's their decision. Let's see him try to enforce it. And then march to Native people to Indian Territory and what's now Oklahoma anyway. So throughout history, America has engaged in the American experiment, and we've been central to that experiment. So you can't understand American history. You can't understand American character without thinking about Native people. In relation to us, America has given into its most base instincts, and it has had recourse to its noblest ideals, both in relation to us. You can't understand this place until you begin to think about Indian history. So yeah, I want to change the sense that sort of, you know, oh, we're, we're interesting to think about once in a while, you know, when you want to feel a little guilt and release. Like, we're more important to America than that. Our guest today on Forthright Radio is University of Southern California professor David Troyer. We're discussing his latest book, The Heartbeat of Wounded Knee, Native America from 1890 to the Present. I do want to say something in defense of Dee Brown, though, because I, I did come from an East Coast, middle-class, ignorant background, and Dee Brown's book was a real eye-opener for me. I had had no idea that that particular massacre, much less all the others, had happened. 
And I didn't take away, I think it might have been because of the times that it was happening. The American Indian movement was just beginning to happen. And so I didn't take away from it that that was the end. And, well, of course, there was the tragedy of the massacre. I very much appreciated what you said, though, that I also didn't take away after reading his book. In fact, I didn't have any idea that there were 200 survivors, 200 plus survivors of the massacre. I assumed that they had all been wiped out. And please talk about what a disrespect that is. Right. Well, Dee Brown's book is an important book. Yeah. When I read it, you know, as fate would have it, I read it in 1990 when I was in college. I read it on the 100th anniversary of the massacre at Wounded Knee when I first picked up that book. I'd seen it my whole life. Everyone's got a copy. Sure. But I'd never read it. And my reaction to that book was complicated then, and it's complicated now. My, my, fe- my reactions to the book haven't changed a whole lot. As you point out, on one hand, I felt really, really grateful to him that he dedicated so much of his intelligence and energy and effort into reviving and reminding people of our history. And that's no small gift that he left not just Native people, but but America. That was really important. So I felt really lifted up on one hand. But per the passages I quoted to you, I also felt shoved in my grave. And that understanding, that understanding like the only real Indians to people are some sort of antique, lost in time, who have no purchase or relevance in the modern world. That is a common, that is a common understanding. Native people, when we go, when we're out and about just living our lives... Oftentimes, and this is a widespread feeling, that if you act in a way that doesn't jive with what people think Indians should be doing, you are sort of discounted as actually being Native. They recognize intellectually, like this person says they're Native, and I guess they are. They either are enrolled or they look a certain way or they might be doing a certain thing. But if you insist on being Native and modern, it doesn't work. There's a cognitive dissonance that drowns out the dimensions and textures and complications and beauty of our modern lives. I mean, I felt this just on this book tour when I was in Washington, D.C., and some guy was talking about, during the question and answer, he's talking about going to Pine Ridge, and he wanted to, a very sympathetic guy, and he wanted to donate his time and expertise. He was some kind of designer, and he wanted to help them with some sort of museum project they were working on, and, and he said that you know, he, was af- he was offering his help, and, and the people he was talking to refused. So they rebuffed him. They said, no, we don't want your help. And then he said, so, but, but then Indians want white people things. They want trucks, and they want chairs, and they want houses, but they don't want white people. It's like, why don't Indians want white people? I'm like, I'm sorry. I stopped listening when it sounded like you're trying to take away my chair. I said, why in your mind is a truck or a chair something that's white? And a tomato, which we actually gave you guys, is not Indian, it's just a food. So you, you erase that contribution, but you are reminded that sort of some technological contributions from, from Europeans are somehow don't belong to us as modern people. And I said, and as far as, as Pine Ridge goes, maybe the person you were talking to is, is a jerk. I don't know. And, or, maybe that person you were talking to does not like you. Maybe the problem is not that they don't want to work and build bridges with, with non-Native people. Maybe the thing is they just don't want to work with you. It's possible. It's possible that you're abrasive. I don't know. I don't know you. I was like, but, but you're taking this as a referendum. You're taking this as a cultural position. He's a human being you're talking to. 
And it sounds like you're not treating him like a human being. It sounds like you're talking to him as an Indian that you want him that you want to act in a certain way, and he's refusing. We're speaking with David Troyer. He is the author of The Heartbeat of Wounded Knee. And part of the book is history. Part of it is reflections on your listening tour around the United States of different individuals and tribes. And part is your internal journey. I'd like us to focus now on the people sure. that you interview. And among them, I think it's it's either Sarah... House or Chelsea Lugar? Luger. Luger. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, it's a, a relatively common thing that I'm hearing, particularly from Native women, where they're in a quandary. In a school setting, if they do well, they're kind of shunned by other Native people. This is what I'm hearing. Okay. And as recently as uh, last Friday, Trishina Kills Pretty Enemy gave a talk at the university in which she ex- talked about her journey academically and that she had to deal with that. And then on the other hand, she also wasn't quote unquote white enough. She was so she was she felt caught in the middle. Do you have any sympathy with that or, or is that contrary to what you're hearing? I don't know. I mean, one of the things I talk about in the book is. There's no such thing as Indian life. There's yeah. just Indian lives. Yeah. So if if this this native woman is is talking and she's saying that that was her experience, I have no reason to doubt her. I'm sure that I'm sure she's telling the truth about her experience. My experience is going to be different mm-hmm. as a man, yeah. as a, as a man from a different tribe, as a, as a man with a different path. I can say that in so many ways, and I had a constant daily reminder of this, you know, in the example of my mother that in so many ways, Native women have been the ones who have been leading us forward for so, so long. And so the women you mentioned that I include in the book, among them Sarah Agaton House and Chelsea Luger, are these incredible, brilliant women who are, in those two cases, doing things around health and exercise and connecting their modern Indian identity identities as strong, educated Native women to a kind of tribal understanding of individual and collective health. And they are, to me at least, inspirational. Yeah, I can't express enough sort of how much what they do means to me and how much, how much hope I get from, from their efforts. One of the people who is kind of threaded throughout the book is Bobby Matthews. Am I right? He's your cousin? He is my uncle. Oh, uncle. Excuse me. By sort of how we relate, technically, he's my mother's first cousin. What would that make him in white kinship terms? I don't in know. In my white kinship but, term, that's an uncle, too. <laughs> yeah, but in Ojibwe life, like he's, he's my uncle. Share with our listeners whatever comes to mind. I mean, it could be anything in the book. He is just, he's a great character, if nothing he else. He is insane. I think I mean that both literally and I mean that sort of as a shorthand for how we talk about someone who's got an extravagant personality. He and my mom were grew up together almost exactly the same age, and they grew up in the same village as first cousins. And in Ojibwe life, your first cousins are really your siblings. You're, they're thought of as siblings. So they, they her brother, essentially. And he lived a wild life when he was young, up to all sorts of mischief and illegality and later in life in sort of middle age he decided to try and make his living off the land and it's not a romantic thing 
it's often thought of like, oh, I'm going to live off the land. I'm going to go live in a little cabin on a mountaintop and wake up at dawn and say a little prayer and go hunt an elk and use all the parts. It's not romantic. But he makes, he supports himself well through a number of endeavors. He harvests pine cones and acorns to sell to forest concerns who want to grow seedlings. He traps furs for sale on the fur market. He traps bait leeches for sport fishing. He harvests cranberry bark, which is used in pharmaceutical stuff. And he does really well. He's always in the woods. He's not educated. I don't know that he ever went to any kind of college. He might have done some trade school because he did work as a construction worker for a while. He can fix anything, though. He's got a brilliant mind and a creative, brilliant, questioning, curious mind. I just, I love him. I love his brain. Well, it's interesting you say he's not educated, and I don't mean to quibble, but he may not have university education. Well, that's what I meant by he education. He is a natural scientist. Oh, for sure. Talk about his journals. Yeah, he keeps very detailed journals. He writes in them every day about what the temperature is, what the barometric pressure is, how much cloud cover, what the snow cover is like, where the wind's coming from. And he does this every day. He's got the, and Then he'll do his things in the woods, whether it's trapping or trapping leeches or cutting bark or hunting or whatever it might be. And so he'll have, he has records going back 20 years of what he's been up to. So he's got by now a really keen sense that when a certain flower is in bloom, then he knows it's a good time to go to a certain lake and then he'll, he'll make a killing. And he just knows that landscape and its intricacies so deeply and in ways that I, nobody else knows. And he had to kind of discover that himself. Sure. I didn't get the impression that this was handed nope. down to him from Jen. He did it the hard way. He did the hard way, but yeah. I mean, his dad was a trapper. Uh-huh. His dad was a was a forager to some extent. He also his dad also had my mom's uncle Howard also worked and had you know wage labor and things like that too. But he was a woodsman. My uncle Howard was Bobby's dad. So Bobby was raised doing stuff in the woods. But he didn't have a kind of. There wasn't like some some elder sat him down like little boy, I'm going to teach you the ways of the wild. Like he, he went out and wrestled with <laughs> the woods and figured it out. I mean, it's just the way his brain works. Our guest today on Forthright Radio is University of Southern California professor David Troyer. We're discussing his latest book, The Heartbeat of Wounded Knee, Native America from 1890 to the Present. You stress the importance of retaining and regaining language. And that this was a particular thing for you in 1994, right? Yeah, throughout the 90s, after I graduated from college, I wanted to go back and I wanted to improve my language skills. And I wanted to devote myself to Ojibwe language revitalization. Talk about the importance of that, because I think that many people think of it as, oh, isn't that quaint, you know, uh, et cetera. But it's it's not just quaint. It's it's crucial. It's crucial. I mean, a a, a people's sense of themselves is constructed in a number of ways, but in th- the most powerful way that, that a country or a community or a nation understands itself is through language and, and by sharing a language. And so the revitalization of tribal languages isn't just uh, a cultural act. It's a political act. And you know, my brother is, is fond of pointing out, he says, the U.S. government has spent a couple centuries trying to destroy us, taking away our religion, taking away our language, trying to take away our land. Why now would we look to them 
to try and restore those things. So it's also a kind of inward-turning activism. Activists of the 70s might have been looking out, trying to remind the government of its obligations to Native people by staging these extravagant acts of civil disobedience. But a more recent kind of activism is an inward turn, saying, let's return. Let's return to tribal ways, language, ceremony, life ways, things like that. Not as a kind of tribal nostalgia, but as a way to live in the modern world. And that's profound. And it's important. You lose your language. Are you a culture anymore, or are you just an ethnicity? And you were very specific talking about that it was impossible to, what's the verb, um, do your religion yeah. in anything other than right. your language. Yeah, our, our language, our religion, which I won't talk about very no, much. I won't um, ask you is vested in the Ojibwe language. Mm. The language itself, at least in the ceremonial context, is the language itself is understood as a sacred vessel. And there is no way to practice the Ojibwe religion and to, to keep it alive without the Ojibwe language. So the language dies, our religion dies. The Gospel of John begins in the beginning was the word. Yeah. Well, right. you know, maybe John might have been right about he might that, and maybe right about that. us, too. <laughs> Emerging litigation capability and how important that was in the undoing of the horrible laws that had been done from the 1970s on. We're not, we don't have time to go into right. more than one. <laughs> so I'll let you choose the one you want our listeners to know about. Emerging litigation capability? Or the particular change in laws, particularly Supreme Court decisions. There have been 120 Supreme Court decisions since, the ni- since 1955 in favor of Native tribes. Which, who knew that? <laughs> right. Yeah, that's not front-page news, I'll People tell you. People are surprised when I tell them that in between the 1970s and 1990s, the United States Supreme Court heard more cases about Indian law than any other genre of law. More than reproductive rights, more than immigration, more than banking. <laughs> That's shocking to most people. So America bruised and conflicted after enduring civil rights, the Pentagon Papers, the Vietnam War, Watergate, was trying to understand itself anew, and in part it understood itself anew in relation to tribal persistence and the, pers- and the recognition of the sovereign rights of the Indian community, America has always practiced the experiment of being America in relation to Native people. And often, of course, during westward expansion and the full expression of Manifest Destiny at our expense. So America has been shaped by us, and we've been shaped by it since the beginning. And so there's no way to understand us, and there's no way to understand America without considering us. And in the 70s, finally, and people are surprised when I say this, that there have been bad American presidents and there have been some better ones. John F. Kennedy was pretty good. Eisenhower was pretty bad. Johnson was pretty good for Native communities. Nixon was an amazing president for Native people. He had his flaws. (laughs) There's no doubt about it. But it was under his watch that the United States government finally ratified a new federal Indian policy that was based in tribal self-determination. It seems so simple to say, but it was not 
actual policy until the 1970s that the United States government position was that sovereign Indian nations understand best what works for them and what they need and how to govern their own affairs. And the United States government, insofar as it relates to tribes, put itself in a position of assisting tribes as they shaped their futures. That was Nixon. And it was under Nixon, I think, I'm not sure if I get the name right, the Indian Education Act was passed, which finally gave Native people far more control over our education, our schools, our curriculum, staffing, things like that. So starting in the 70s, and it didn't really kick in, it took some time, finally sort of Native people were being taught by Native people for the first time in decades, if not a century. What a shock. What a difference. I never had any Native teachers growing up, but my brother and sister did. My kids have had. It's huge. When you see someone in the classroom who's sort of like you, who's leading you, we'd never had that. In 1978, under Carter, they passed into law the Indian Religious Freedom Act. It was against the law to practice Native religions until 1978. We did not have religious freedom. Now, those laws weren't enforced very, very hard in the 60s and 70s. But for the six decades before that, traditional Native people did not get government jobs. Traditional Native people were not empowered by the Bureau of Indian Affairs to run for tribal office. Traditional people were penalized by withholding food, and by imprisonment for practicing Native religion. So to finally have religious freedom on paper, that was huge. Let's talk about, speaking of empowerment and Supreme Court decisions, Indian casinos. Big topic. Always. It can be quite polarizing. Why? Well, I'm not... Yeah. I don't get it, but I'm... I don't even understand why it's polarizing. I mean... I think it's polarizing to the consciousness of a zero-sum game. And if the Indians are getting money, that means uh, white people are losing it somehow. Right. Well, that's based on this misapprehension that treaty rights are something that the government gave us. Exactly. Yeah. And I should just say for your listeners, that's not how treaty rights work. Talk about how they work. Treaty rights are the rights we've always enjoyed long before white people showed up in the New World the right to administer to our civil affairs, the right to gamble, the right to hunt, the right to trap and fish, the right to practice our religions in certain sacred spots. All those things fall under treaty rights, which are often enumerated in the treaties that the government made with tribes. Those aren't rights they gave to us. Those are rights we've reserved. We've had them all along. We still have them. Gambling falls under that. So it's people think of like, well, the government gave Indians the right to gamble. I'm like, no, 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 no. We've always had the right to do that. That right has never been bargained away. We've never let go of it. And it was only starting in the 80s or late 70s, early 80s, that tribes started pushing for this right to administer to our civil affairs. Because, like, gambling is a civil concern, not a criminal concern. To try and push bingo parlors and poker rooms and subsequently casinos. And the government had to concede that, in point of fact, this was something we always had the right to do. It's a right we've always had. And so that's how treaty treaty rights work. But people think of it as a kind of pity payment for past harm. Or that we get to harvest more deer, or that we get to hunt in certain areas, or I can camp in sort of Voyager's National Park in Minnesota without a permit or without having to reserve a spot, because that was our land first. And the park got laid over the top of it, for instance. So that's a misapprehension. But I think the the idea of rich Indians freaks people out and it makes people uncomfortable. 
It should be said that only a tiny fraction of the over 100 plus gaming tribes in the States, only a fraction of those turn a profit. And a fraction of those turn a huge profit. But people are freaked out by rich Indians. So I get asked all the time. People are like, hey, because they, they seem deeply concerned. Like, how has gaming destroyed Indian culture? And I always respond, I'm like, how has Facebook destroyed white culture? And they're like, well, but, but don't you think it's sort of caused addiction? I'm like, don't you think online poker has caused addiction among white people? They're like, well, hasn't it changed life? I'm like, has Apple... Let's not talk about online pornography. Right? Has, has Apple changed white culture? Has it screwed up French culture? You know, what about Microsoft? I'm like, think of, think of, think of casinos as, as a corporate product, which is what they are. As corporations, which is what they are. Corporations in modern life are complicated. They have some pernicious effects sometimes. Not completely so. They've had positive and negative effects on all our lives. Casinos are no different than that. It's not a referendum on modern Indian identity or modern Indian culture, but, oh, people are like, oh, like, what do you want us to do? You want us to still, like, be running around, like, killing buffalo? Is that your, is that only when you'll be happy? That we have to conform to some romantic idea you have of what we should be up to? So what do you want? Do you want us to just be out hunting buffalo on horseback, or do you want us suffering around an agency somewhere? Those seem to be the two things people want us to be up to. We're up to far more than that. And we're done asking for permission to live as we please. And maybe that's what bothers people. Our guest today on Forthright Radio is University of Southern California professor David Troyer. We're discussing his latest book, The Heartbeat of Wounded Knee, Native America from 1890 to the Present. I thought it was very insightful of you to talk about one of the essential tensions between the dominant American culture, or at least the political elite, and the tribal approach. And one of the things that they were explicit in the 19th century of saying we had to root out was the pronoun we instead of I or me. And that the whole concept of ownership, and particularly around land, and that continues to this day. Yeah. Talk about that as a conflict, and I think it's interesting that in the current electoral system or, or si time that we're in, all of a sudden socialism is a huge bugaboo, and I just think it's it resonates with the tribal way of doing things. Might so. You want to hear a really crazy irony? Yeah, I love crazy ironies. So, like I mentioned before, the shape of American government was in part influenced by the Iroquois Confederacy. You know who else and what else was influenced by the Iroquois Confederacy? Marx and Marxism. Marx and Engels, when they were looking around for their own system, they also drew on things they read about and learned from the Haudenosaunee as they call themselves in the Iroquois Confederacy. So two, these two opposing systems both have a single, in part, a single source, which is native people. But you're right to point out that, you know, there has been an assault on the collective, that the way forward is to think of the individual, the way forward is private ownership. And this is a problem because it's that kind of mindset which paved the way for the Dakota Access Pipeline which is routed through about 90% private land. The problem with Standing Rock was not whites versus Indians. The problem was private ownership versus the common good. That fight is, is coming up again and again in electoral politics. But the government, 
One of the worst things that America does is its, is its insistence on its own exceptionalism. That's pernicious. Our way is the only way. Our way is the best way, obviously, because we won. We won the Cold War. Obviously, we're the best. You know, the individual is supreme. Private enterprise is the way to go. Capitalism is king. The historical record tells us something different. Capitalism went out over communism because of corruption on one hand and deeper pockets on the other. And also, it's just a very small sliver of time. It's a very small sliver of time. <laughs> yeah. Right. And so... The end of the story remains to be it's seen. It's not written yet. <laughs> yes. It's not written yet. At least in terms of the fall of the Soviet Union, yeah. of course. But, you know, and Native people, yeah, sure, we're still here to remind people that there are other ways to organize one's, one's sense of community and one's sense of self. Just speaking personally, and of course, all tribes are different. You have a kind of a, a limited set of stereotypes that people think are true of all tribes. But tribes don't understand private ownership. We do. Tribes don't believe you can own the land. That's not true. Indian tribes are natural conservationists and don't waste anything. Not true. We do. You know, all these sort of pleasant myths that people have of us and our holism. A little more complicated than that. I had gone to Tulalip, which is a reservation just north of Seattle, because I was supposed to write a story about tribal cannabis. The New York Times Sunday Magazine wanted me to write an article about tribal pot. And tribes that were getting into the pot business, and they thought it was ironic that communities that suffer from high rates of drug abuse and drug addiction would go into the drug business. And they, they thought that was poignant and interesting. I'm like, okay, I'm ambitious. I wanted to write for the New York Times Sunday Magazine. I'm like, okay, I'll do it. And I went up there, and I spent about a week up there and talking to all sorts of people. And then I called my editor. I'm like, dude, there's not a story about tribal cannabis. I mean, they're going to do it, but they, the whole state's going to do it. You, you're wondering if it's going to be like... Casinos, and it's not going to be like casinos, because they're not going to have a monopoly. Because the whole state of Washington is going to be stoned in a year. <laughs> you know? I was like, but there is a story there. In this day and age, when we've heard, spent eight years listening to Obama talk about the disappearing middle class, which is a really kind of cagey way of saying that there's more and more poor people, that doesn't sell quite as well, you know? Because we all have middle class aspirations. But it's true that in America, like, middle class is shrinking, the number of poor is growing. The number of the very rich is staying the same, but they're just getting richer. I said, but you want to see a place in America where there's a vibrant, healthy, growing, exuberantly productive middle class? Go to Tulalip. Go to a reservation, which is completely surprising. You know, and it's pretty easy to see why. They have a very wealthy casino. But other tribes do too, but they don't have a middle class. But with that casino, they have diversified. They have amazing free daycare up to kindergarten. Amazing daycare and then preschool and after school care. Free child care. But state of the art, like brilliant child care. They have free, accessible, easy and amazing healthcare. They have affordable housing. It's not a mystery, but it's happening. And they have, each tribal member gets about $15,000 a year from the casino in a per capita payment. Not enough to really live on, but enough of a cushion that you're encouraged to risk trying things. Oh yeah, free education too, as well. Your college is paid for. So they're growing a whole class of college graduates. They're growing an entire sort of entrepreneurial class and a lawyer class. They're making stuff happen. And so 
in this community of maybe 5,000 people, there are over 400 successful small businesses. Smoked salmon shops and convenience stores and construction companies and gravel companies and fishermen. Because they can try it out and they've got a little bit of a safety net, a, a nice safety net. If it doesn't work out, they can try something else. Like they have a great middle class. That was super surprising. That was like really cool. I'm like, what? This is nuts. And they have problems. And like, it's, it's shocking, right? But we need to remember all these other writers who deal with these issues. But they're like, well, yeah, you know, but drugs are still a problem. I'm like, and, and okay, fine. Are you saying that drugs aren't a problem among sort of Ivy League graduates living on the Upper East Side? Right? Are you telling me? And Michelle Alexander in The New Jim Crow points this out compellingly. All of the policing is done in poor neighborhoods. The majority of sort of drug possession and dealing happens in rich neighborhoods. It happens in suburbs. It happens in the nice parts of town. It's by design that it works this way. They're just not going to get arrested for it. Matt Taibbi covers this also in Divide, which is an amazing book. Injustice in the Age, in the age of the Wealth Gap. It's a, it's a great book. Really readable. So I'm like, yeah, of course there's still drug problems at Tulalip. Yes, of course they still have problems with teen suicide. Yes, they still have social problems. Yes, they have cultural problems. Naturally, they're not a place without problems. But it's an interesting place. It's a surprising place. So that was one thing. That's in here. That's a chapter later in the book. But New York Times ended up not publishing it. They were in, they're like, no, we're interested in pot. I'm like, losers. <laughs> that's not even interesting. This is interesting. This is cool. You know? So... So just speaking about me and sort of my sense of sort of Ojibwe life, there's, there's very much a sort of an understanding of individual life and free will and all that. But there's also an understanding of how that individual is strengthened and relates to the group. And that's really important. When I first moved to California, I was a little conflicted, still conflicted about not being at home. Well, a buddy of mine from back home, he's like, you're moving to California. I'm like, yeah. He's like, what the hell for? Why would you want to go out there? I was like, man, I like being in the mix. He's like, that makes sense. He's like, all right, make us proud, though. And that, that was on my mind, and it's always been on my mind. Like, you know, I'm out, I'm out in the world, you know, but always trying to think and to keep the tribe in mind, if not in heart. It's important. So we haven't touched on the whole urban reservation balancing well that's easy to to like discuss on one hand a lot of people think indians only exist on reservations and on the other people say no the majority of indians live in cities and neither position is true it is true that the majority of native people don't live within the reservation boundaries of their tribes but that doesn't mean they live in big cities is that native people live everywhere bozeman missoula harlem helena Livingston. Indians live all over the place. Small towns, suburbs, some in big cities. The majority of Indians, I believe, that don't live on reservations live very close to them in small to mid-sized cities and towns across the United States. That's my impression. It used to be that there was might have been a big divide in the 50s between urban Native communities and reservation Native communities. I don't even feel that anymore. People move all over the place. As Native people, many of whom are, are doing slightly better than in the past, it means you're slightly more mobile than you might have been in the past. So people are always moving all over the place, back and forth and here and there. And 
there may have been a, a barrier that was hard to permeate, maybe, in the past between reservation communities and the rest of America, but not so much. But there is this understanding that, that tribal communities, reservation communities, are in America, but not of it. And that's never been true. Tribal communities, reservations, are of America, and we move... You know, America's basically been laid over the top of our tribal homelands. Tribal homelands were here first. And so you, don't think of it as one either or. It's never either or. It's, it's one and. One on top of the other. Overlapping. Always overlapping. And so when seen that way, you know, moving from a reservation to some other place, like it's not, it's not a thing, you know. That's good to hear. But on the other hand, with the missing and murdered indigenous women, the way I've heard it explained is one of the reasons that it's gotten to the proportions that it has is because of the confusion of jurisdictions. That is true. That is very true. There are extraordinary number of missing and murdered Native women in the United States and Canada, in part, there are lots of reasons why this is. A lot of social chaos, a lot of upheaval, a lot of, a lot of instability. And that has to do with class, too. A lot of Native people are poor. A lot of Native people are always trying to shift and, and move to try and find some security. And Native women are often very vulnerable at the bottom of the socioeconomic ladder in this country. So that's part of it. Part of it is jurisdictional around reservation communities. Confusions about jurisdiction and a disinterest from maybe state and local authorities to investigate the sexual violence, assault, domestic violence that occurs in Native households, even if it's being perpetrated by non-Native men. There has been some recent legislation which is meant to close that gap, those jurisdictional gaps and those gaps of interest and disinterest in the fate and future of Native women. And so the Violence Against Women Act was renewed with additional riders that increased the power of, of tribal police forces and tribal courts to prosecute non-Native people who abuse Native, Native women. And that's a huge victory. Well, unfortunately, it ha- wasn't renewed in wait, wait. 2018. It's been in- reintroduced. Okay. It's been reintroduced. It was, it was renewed in 2016? Well, all I know was it lapsed, it lapsed in 2018. Okay. And then because of the new Congress, anyway, it, it just was reintroduced uh, in the House okay. this week. Okay. And the Hopefully. writers were included of LGBTQ oh, wow. and Native American and immigrant women. Wow. Uh, which That's... was what had held it up before. Right. Well, I have yeah, fingers crossed in that case. Yes. Yeah. Now, we, you briefly talked about this when you were acknowledging Nixon's help. The rise of tribal colleges is a very important phenomenon. Yes, it's so important. Talk about that, please. There has been a boom, I think starting in the 70s. There are a few tribal colleges which have been around maybe even since the 60s, but not many. But there was kind of a, a bloom of tribal colleges in the 80s and 90s. And they are a huge resource. They are hugely important, not just for Native people, but also for rural non-Native people who also attend these colleges. Yeah. Enrollment at, you know, Leech Lake Tribal College or Fond du Lac Tribal and Community College in Minnesota, to name two, is open not just to Native people. And for a lot of Native people, at least in where I'm from, where, you know, our high schools are not that great. 
And Native American folk, we suffer from low graduation rates and a low rate of matriculation to colleges. And those who do attend four-year universities, many of them don't finish. So given all of that, two-year colleges, accredited tribal colleges, are a huge stepping stone for Native people moving into, or maybe late to the game of education, maybe not a traditional student, maybe not coming right from high school, but coming to college later, maybe with young children, all sorts of reasons why college is not going to work. And these work, and they're in and near our communities, and they're staffed by people from our communities, and people from our communities are professors and college presidents and provosts of these places and deans. They run the places. And... Again, it's this way in which education is something that is finally being something that is being done for us and not to us. And by. And by us as well. And what's really great is that maybe some latent or not so latent racism between non-natives and native people is sometimes undone when you have all these non-native people attending tribal colleges, working and learning together. Bridges and connections are being built in ways that, that previously they weren't. And it's very encouraging. Please tell our listeners what you want them to hear that we weren't able to get to in this time. <laughs> I don't know. We covered a lot of ground, I think. I would just like to reiterate that not only are we still here, we're doing more than simply surviving now into the 21st century, and that we are acting and we are living and we are making our lives. And we're doing them as a simultaneously ancient and modern people. That's hard for people to understand. We're doing it as people who are agents of history. History is not something that just happened in the past. History flows through us and is expressed in our experiences, our identities, our behaviors, our thoughts. And so it's important to understand that Native American history, which is important to American history, is not of the deep past. It's alive in us in sometimes unhealthy ways and sometimes in healthy ways. It's important to remember. It's important for a teacher who's teaching a Native student to remember that that Native student's relative, not even that far back in time, their grandparent, perhaps, was forced to go to a residential boarding school. And that shaped them and their relationship to subsequently being a parent and shaped their relationship to education. That's still alive. So when you have that Native student in your class... When you have that Native student as a classmate, when you're a Native person who's meeting another Native person, remember these things that we experienced, some of them positive, some of them negative, but they're all alive in us now. They shape us. They're not distant. They're close. And that might help all of us as we try to collectively, Native and non-Native and everyone in between, to forge a better version of this country. In Bemidji, which is the border town that I went to high school in, that I grew up in, that was kind of a whole racist town when I was a kid, and it's, it's come a long way. One thing that's happening in Bemidji, and it means a lot. It feels really good. Increasingly, all the signage is bilingual, Ojibwe and English. And so you have, like, white shopkeepers who, when I was a kid, would kick Indians out, greeting Native people, Ojibwe people, like, Ani, Buju, like, they'll use a little bit of Ojibwe, and it's not much, but they use some. All the signage for the men's room and women's room and welcome and come in. Even the police cars, which is kind of funny, are bilingual. And it creates an entirely different attitude and feeling, not just among Native people. It's worth pursuing. Local businesses have just jumped into it in Bemidji and it feels good. 
It's a really cool thing. It's happening in other places in the country, but I think Bemidji is sort of leading it. That's what I'd like to leave people with. Let it be so. <laughs> David Troyer, thank you so much for joining us thank today. You. We really appreciate your work. Thank you. Our guest today on Forthright Radio has been University of Southern California professor David Troyer. We have been discussing his most recent book, The Heartbeat of Wounded Knee. Native America from 1890 to the Present, published by Riverhead Books. The views and opinions expressed on Forthright Radio are those of the speaker and do not necessarily represent those of this station's staff, its members, board of directors, or contributors. This has been a Beyond the Deep End production, recorded and produced by Joy LaClaire. You can hear past Forthright Radio shows by going to our website, forthright.media.